0: While we are recording, the Sacramento City Council is having an emergency meeting.
1: The business folks, quote unquote leaders, are at it again.
0: They are at it again. And so uh, there are lots of things that are probably questionable about this. Number one, emergency meetings should be reserved for emergencies, um, number two, the agenda only has to be posted 24 hours in advance, giving very few people uh, advance access to what is going to be discussed, or even that there is going to be a discussion. And in this case, the business before us isn't really even the business of the Sacramento City Council; it is the business of the business, the business. districts <laughs> and uh, and their desire to uh, push through the city council. A measure for the ballot that they are currently collecting signatures for, but don't want to spend their own money on these signatures, and they want the council to put this on the ballot for free ninety nine, which the council has the ability to do. So mm. just they, a quick. They don't want civics- waste. Yes,
1: they want. They don't want to waste a week of spending. Um laborers' wages that they've stolen on um, this evil, evil measure that they're pushing. So they're trying to get Mm -hmm. the city council through city manager Howard Chan to do their work.
0: Which we will we'll get to the kind of what they're trying to do in a moment, but just a quick uh, civics lesson um, for context. So when we have our elections, um, there are two ways that the that measures appear on our ballot, either because a legislative body votes to put them on or because uh, members of the community collect signatures. And so um, in the case of, of course, elected officials putting it on, all they have to do is vote in their body and it shows up on the ballot. Whereas if you're collecting signatures, you usually have to pay people to go out and collect those signatures because it requires a lot and um, and you need somebody, you need more than volunteers to be able to do that. And yeah. so, so so basically, that's, that's why people want your elected officials to put things on the ballot because it's free.
1: Yeah. And like, so – The topic of today's show is not on this very, very important homelessness topic, right? The topic of today's show is going to be on the mass shooting that happened over the weekend here in Sacramento, the largest we've ever had in our city. But we're forced to touch on this because of these tone-deaf, horrible folks in the business community pushing this last-minute meeting for a last-minute out of nowhere, vote. While everybody else is trying to process what just happened over the weekend, I don't think I can stress enough just just how horrible that is. Um, and we can name names here, right? Uh, I don't know who this Conway guy is. Isn't he from L.A.?
0: I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. He's trying to like push this law in LA. He's coming up here for this. Then we've got, you know, the, the Barry Broom types of GSEC. We've got, uh, I saw Josh Wood up there on the dais today of, um, uh, what is it? Uh, region business. Um, although now he's just with that, uh, right wing democratic, uh, PR firm on I street. Um, you know, with like the Townsends, David Townsends and mm-hmm. those folks. And then Amanda Blackwood of the Metro Chamber is up there. Uh, all of these folks are working with city manager Howard Chan to, to really circumvent um, really any public discourse on this. And like it's just it's a hor- horrific look.
2: Well, it's a horrific look. And I feel like even to the topic that we're going to talk about today, there's always the, the discussion of equity that's at play. And in this case, I'm thinking about the equity of who's allowed that audience. Um, what convenience looks like, or inconvenience for that matter. The fact that the business district, district, which is about making money, doesn't want to spend money to push their agenda forward, um, is interesting. That city council would say, you know, we'll go ahead and take a vote on this, where you have half the signatures that you probably need to get to a ballot measure, whereas most community-driven um, ballot measures. They want to see the full number and then they want to do a verification of those signatures. So, again, who's prioritized within? We're going to actually take governments into action versus who's forced to fight for the pennies and scraps just to get just an equity. I think it's always always fascinating to see how often our city that has elected body of Democrats moving that way. But I digress.
0: Not to mention the fact that they're alleging, you know, they're claiming that they have half of the signatures that they need, but those signatures have not been verified yet. So we have no clue whether or not that's actually nope. true. Um, and so to take this up as an emergency meeting is an expenditure of resources, of city resources. Um, it is a, you know, essentially allowing them to set the agenda that our city council takes up. And I just like to draw the stark contrast to, you know, when, uh uh, sac kids first was introducing measure G in 2020 which was to be able to set aside part of the budget for um, for services focused to youth um, and, and youth youth programming and just general funding youth initiatives um or even when you know uh when when um, renters rights you know uh, advocates wanted to pass you know their measure c um, and establish rent control and neither of those were taken up for vote by the the council and so Where was the
1: urgency there it's really interesting Darryl? especially
0: yeah. because the deadline for this if this is going to go on the november ballot isn't until early august so the only reason to take this up as an emergency right now is because they don't want to continue to spend money collecting six rich
1: folks want them to do it so
2: yeah so just so we're clear
1: did we even say what this is
0: no we haven't said what it is yet but i but I, i just want to point out that this is an example of corporate welfare
2: well, and, and, and so, just, don't I,
0: turn around and ask about people taking, you know, public money for their their basic human needs. When businesses can waste this much money, even in the time that was spent tonight, even if the council doesn't uh, doesn't agree to put this on the ballot, the time that was spent tonight is wasted money on their interest and nobody else's. And if they do take it up, then they're able to save money and avoid having to spend money to do something that community advocates and renters and people with the fewest resources in our community had to go out and through their own sweat equity put on a ballot and that should be, everybody on there should be shamed for that because that's disgraceful.
2: So just, just for clarity, the emergency in the situation is the saving of dollars for business interest. Right. And, and, Correct. I mean, I Correct. can't not miss that. Okay. I just want to make sure. Right. It is.
0: We, co- we couldn't open homeless 100%. shelters last, last January when we had a storm that ended up killing six people. We couldn't do that during the emergency meeting, but we can set an emergency meeting specifically for the business interests in Sacramento. Okay. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, and in, in like, so just for folks, this is this is a massive, like, omnibus approach to homelessness in our region that they're um, pushing forward here that would make it compulsory for the city to create beds. It doesn't say what kind, doesn't say how, doesn't say, you know, what standards for the people's quality of life who would have to sleep in those beds and then it makes it compulsory for folks on the street to take them and then it tries to circumvent Boise decision which basically is now which basically determined that if you're going to harass folks sleeping on the streets and you don't have a bed for them then that's unconstitutional that is cruel and unusual punishment it's trying to do all of these things and they're they're taking 24 hours To try and get the city to act on this, these business interests, when the people haven't even had a chance to breathe after this fucking mass shooting. It is unconscionable. Um, I think I know the hearts of Barry Broom and Josh Wood and Howard Chan. Uh, I'm a little surprised at Amanda on this one, too. It's
0: just disappointing. Business gone business. Looks like it. And it's the role of government to limit them because, I mean, honestly, in this, they're playing their role, right? Their role is to try to squeeze as much out of everyone as possible. And the government's role is to say, no, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we protect the interests of people. So that's, I think, what's most disappointing today is that agendas were set to even waste everyone's time to have to decide on this tonight. And that was the first misstep. And then whatever happens tonight is just... An exacerbation of that.
1: Yeah. And we're recording as this meeting uh wraps up, so we don't know. Um, but I'm sure you'll be able to see an article by like a you know, some reporter whose name maybe rhymes with Clee Tift or something in the morning. Um, but for now, can we talk about what we came here to talk about?
2: We can. I think we can. I think that's a, a good good time to get into it.
0: Yeah.
1: All right, let's start the show.
2: They said, voices, some from those dead. all the
0: voices heard. Voices, the things we say, voices,
2: they in your head, all
1: the voices her Hello everyone, you have Kempa,
0: and Flo,
2: and
1: Ryan,
0: and Ryan.
1: And a very special guest today, um, our good friend Ryan McClinton. Uh, Ryan is program manager at Public Health Advocates, so a colleague of Flo's. Flows. Community organizer and longtime Sacramento resident, or lifetime Sacramento resident. Um, Ryan, so excited to have you. Uh, Obviously, we don't have Shannon and Skylar on. Um, They've they've both got things to be doing right now. Um, But... I, I think this is going to be a really important episode and we, we had to put it off a couple days, but I think, honestly, I think the uh, few days really allows us after the mass shooting in downtown Sacramento, it kind of allows us to speak on this topic uh, with a little less of a knee-jerk reaction. So I think this is going to be, um, I think it's going to be a good thing. Um, but first things first, uh, Ryan, long time f- friend of the show uh i feel like i see you like once every like three weeks when i walk out the door um (laughs) how are you
2: i'm good i'm good honestly i've been anxiously awaiting my chance to join voices and have some of the great discussions that happen um yeah it's it's been a week for sure as it's been for everybody in sacramento um, and even outside of Sacramento, just realizing what happens. But I think something that you said that's really important to me, uh, Kepa, is that that part of letting it breathe. Um, when we think about trauma so often, it's one, it's something that's we're stuck in, right? And there's an immediacy to it. Um, I think the other thing that hurts so much from it is that there's never really time to process it and, and understand, like, what just happened. Uh, so that time in between of, like, what happened Saturday or Saturday morning, Sunday morning, And to where we're now at Wednesday and you actually have found out a lot more information to understand what's going on. I think we needed that. Um, I think there's a rush to speak to things sometimes and you don't know all the information. I think that's harmful, especially with traumatic incidents like that because as we'll talk about tonight, narratives go all types of ways and whatnot. And it's a part of where do we rein that in and actually get to the source of the issue.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So let's get into it then. Um, You know, uh, First things first for folks, uh, Ryan, your work with, you know, professionally is generally around alternatives pol- to policing, correct?
2: Yeah. Uh, currently, I'm at Public Health Advocates, where I'm focusing on a campaign around first response transformation. So how do we look at the systems that have been our go-to for safety and in crisis situations and recognize, is there are they equitably responding? Are they giving us the responses that we need for our communities? And is it the best way to do it? Um, I think for me, it was an evolution of the work I had privacy, previously been doing for about five years or so or four to five years um, around gun violence intervention, um, uh, reducing mass incarceration, um, reducing violence in black and brown communities, um, and really finding ways to empower communities to be safer from their own volition or from their own leadership. Um, so when you look at the first response system as it is now, I think we're really at a critical time to look at Are we defining public safety the right way? Are we defining uh, first response the right way? And are we really understanding what's happening in these moments like Saturday or Sunday morning's unfortunate events to really get to solutions that work? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm – the, I, the, I'm really, uh, really thankful we got to have you on today for this and like very, honestly, it's kind of serendipitous. I was walking up to K street. I ran into you basically on K and 10th where, where all of this happened. Um, and we just started chatting and, and probably for about 10 minutes. And I was like, man, it'd be really nice to have you on the show if we could get you this week. So I'm glad we got you. Um, why don't we start with just like the facts of, of what happened, uh, in Sacramento on Saturday night slash Sunday morning. Right. Um, why don't you two leave this part to me, uh, fill in the blanks as, as we go. But I think, um, you know, with Ryan's expertise and Flo's expertise as a public health professional, like I'm going to be doing more asking questions as we go on. Um, Basically, effectively Sunday morning around 2 a.m. in downtown Sacramento around the corner of 10th and K Street. This is, you know, just like two blocks from the state capitol. There's there's a good number of nightclubs, bars, all these different things over there. And it usually gets kind of um, kind of popping over the weekends, right? Um at this time, uh, there was effectively a mass shooting, right? Um, we So far, what we know is from what the police have told us, right? Um, police have said that there have been at least five shooters. Um, they found at least 100 shell casings, which means at least 100 bullets were shot. But I, I've seen estimates up to over 200, Um six people died in this, uh, three men, three women, um, varying ages from like 21 all the way into their fifties. Um, one woman in fact was unhoused and had, you know, been sleeping in a little alcove right by there for years and years. Um, so there, there, there are many sort of different, uh, directions to, to this story as we found over the week. Um, two people were arrested directly related to this um, we don't need to even release names on this show I I, I kind of don't believe in doing that on something like this um, but they were on gun charges one was on um, gun assault um, which I'm not sure the necessarily what that means one of them is in jail currently on on not allowed to be released no bail. Uh, The other one who is his sibling uh, is, I believe, currently in the hospital uh, and will be taken to jail and arraigned um, once once he's deemed healthy enough for that. Um, And then a third person's been arrested uh, really with there's no they have nothing necessarily on this other than the fact that there is footage with this person holding a gun and uh, this person is not legally allowed to hold a gun. Um, I don't know why this is ending up in the stories, but. Look at this. Here I am now bringing this up as well. Um, that's what we know so far. Am I missing anything?
0: Um, not so far. No, okay,
1: straight straight forward. Mm-hmm. Um. So. So I, I guess like let's do an initial response as community advocates. You know, as as you know, human beings who are Sacramento residents. Um, what. What's the initial response that, that we have on this?
2: If I can jump in for one quick second and ask for a little grace on time of it. Um, one thing I definitely want to, would like us to do is to honor the lives that were lost, especially the innocent lives.
1: Um, yes. Thank you, Ryan.
2: No problem. Yeah. Just a few moments of silence just to in respect to those lives and their loved ones. Yeah. Uh...
1: Can, should we, should we list, should we talk about who, who did die that night? Should we give their names?
0: That would be respectful.
1: Okay. Um, so we have, there was Sergio Harris, 38, of North Highlands. Devazia Turner, 29, of Carmichael. Joshua Hoy Lucchesi, 32, of Salinas. Did I pronounce that correctly? Salinas. 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 I always get that wrong. I'm sorry. Um, Those were the three men who died. Uh, Three women were Jantaya Alexander of Elk Grove, 21, uh, Melinda Davis, who had been living over there around K Street um, in an alcove, 57, um, known very well by a lot of uh, local advocates, and yamil Martinez andrade twenty one of Selma in Fresno county, uh, and thank you again for that, Ryan.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely and and I think when we talk about those initial reactions, um, for me, it always starts with the humanity. Those are six lives, you know, regardless of what was happening in their lives at that point in time that are no longer here, um, that didn't need to be taken away from us. and you know. For a number of years, I did gun violence intervention in response to active shootings and, you know, showing up on scenes where, you know, there's tons of loved ones who are there trying to make sense of the loss that's happened. Um, And I appreciate um, that we name those victims and those lost lives here as well. But it's a tragic loss. You know, Um, I (laughs) it was weird because I couldn't sleep well that night. And About two thirty, three o'clock, I woke up and I just remember like jumping up. And I'm like, okay, it's just a bad night of sleep. Go back to sleep an hour later, I wake up again, and something tells me to check my phone. And I'm receiving text messages from friends who used to live in Sacramento, who are now on the East Coast, saying, hey, are you okay? Are you good? I'm like, of course I'm fine, I'm at home. But then I look at um, KCRA, and I see that was the first uh, outlet I seen that reported the story that there was a mass shooting downtown. And my mind started immediately going to the intervention workers and the folks who are likely to be there at that time and have probably been out there for several hours at that point. Um, to understand like what's happened and try to mitigate any further harm. Um, And then it's putting the story together of what actually happened, right? You know, you read a news article at the initial (laughs) stages, there's probably five lines, no more than six sentences that say shooting down here, this many people harmed, more details to come. You look at video clips, they're just regurgitating the same information because they're trying to get it as quickly as uh, possible. And, I think the other part of it that comes from the gun violence intervention piece of it is that we often say the streets uh, talk faster than news outlets. Um, So then starting to turn to those sources to like get more and more pieces to the story. But at that point, you're still trying to make sense of it all, like what happened and what caused it and and what spiraled. And I couldn't rest beyond that. Like it was just disruptive. Um, Flo, how did it uh, hit you?
0: Yeah, I was awakened at about, you know, 5 a.m. or so from a call actually from the East Coast um, and from one of my like favorite people in life and that I've known my entire life. um, uh, And uh, he called and was just like, are you like, are you lot? Are you okay?" And I was just like, I didn't know what had happened because I was asleep. That I checked, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I need to reach out to one of my colleagues who was in town because I had just dropped him off a block from there uh, several hours before this happened." And really, I, I was, you know, just thinking about the fact that the only reason that we had not chosen to go out, you know, on the town while he was in town was because we were exhausted from prepping for this meeting on Monday, and we were just both like, "Yeah, let's just go to sleep." But it was, you know, it just you know, recognizing just how close you come to things because it very much. You know, very easily could have been us out on K Street that night, you know, trying to to find something to do and hang out. So um, that was my that was that was how I learned about it. And then, of course, just recognizing what this means for the city, what this means in terms of the conversations that are going to come. Right. Like it's I I was thinking about, you know, a time uh, three years ago when we were out. And we were reeling from a mass shooting while learning about the next mass shooting. Right. Um, and there's something just really, you know, uniquely and pathologically American about that phenomenon um, and the way in which we wring our hands and pretend as if this is inevitable. Um, you know, there was an Onion, I think, <laughs> a headline, um, which is, a, of course, a, a satire publication that said, you um, you know, uh, unable to understand or, or comprehend mass shootings by only nation where this type of thing happens regularly, right? It's just like, you know, we, we do have to look at, you know, this is not unknown. Um, there's, there's research and bodies of work around this. And just because the common conversation around this is, oh my gosh, crime, gee, I don't know, right? Which is a quote from, um, uh, from the West Wing, from the the late '90s, but like actually, crime G, we do know. There's entire bodies of scholarship, and if you don't know, say that. But don't say we don't know because we do.
1: Oof, I maybe we start with that we do know, um, and that that wasn't the next topic, but I I think that um, maybe it should be. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about gun violence in this country. It's a country of 360 million people. Um, There are more guns out here around the the nation than there are adults living in this country, right? Um, And this is a reality we live with here. Um, When we talk about gun violence, there are some determinants to them right um so i guess flo as a public health professional maybe you start us out with that like what are these determinants to gun violence um and yeah you know (laughs) maybe i should preface this with a lot of if not overtly racist rhetoric um Somewhat dog whistle rhetoric starts coming out around times like this, uh, with shootings like this, and it's really, really fucking unnecessary. Not just that, but also downright fucking wrong. Um, with that being the precursor to this, can you talk us through some of the determinants to gun violence?
0: Sure. Um, So, you know, shout out to the Rise Center in Richmond um, for, you know, just developing some really easily accessible frameworks around, um, you know, the the types of things, the types of phenomena we see in, um, in human populations. But dehumanization and distress, right, is what is ultimately at the root of um, so many of the challenges that we see, but especially violence. Um, And dehumanization and distress comes from all of the policy decisions that we make about how we are going to govern ourselves and whether or not we are going to care for people. And so when we – poverty is a policy decision. It's not a moral failing. Um, So when we make the decisions to allow people to exist without their basic needs being met, we have made a decision that we know is a known predictor of increasing violence, Um, concentrating – uh, people with, you know, traumatic histories in one place and then, um, you know, imposing institutional violence on them is another known determinant of violence. Um, so we 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 understand we have, you know, again, vast bodies of work talking about how when we don't have, you know, affordable housing for people, when we don't provide ways for people to be able to have um, work that pays a livable wage, when we don't provide child care in communities, um, and therefore people are lost or left to side between being able to provide for their families or, or, um or being able to care for their children, um, we're leaving children often unsupervised at times because we're trying to make sure that they have a place to live. Um, and that is one of the, you know, like having, you know, no activities and no supervision between 3 and 6 p.m. is a known predictor of, you know, of youth violence, right? And so just there, there are things we already know um, that we've made conscious decisions not to address. Um, and if we did, we could certainly decrease violence. Um, um, and some of them are big ones that we talk about on this on this podcast a lot, but certainly they are known and they are actionable. And that is the takeaway message for this. Um, and Ryan, of course, is is over at First Restaurant Transformation and has been doing a lot of violence prevention work. So I think, you know, he can further elaborate on that. I'm sure he wants to double dutch in here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other thing, too, that's important, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit tonight, um, but the types of gun violence, or at least the types of incidents incidences of gun violence, I probably didn't say that right, but blame it on my brain, um, <clears throat> really have a, a huge factor to play um, when you're talking about those determinants of it, right? Like um, in my brain and what I've seen from doing that gun violence and intervention work, like we're talking about a very specific um, lane of violence and gun violence, which tends to be classified as gang violence or uh, community gun violence, right? Um, where the factors of the area that you live in are in such dire straits that you're having to make decisions that lead to you picking up a gun. So there's specific gun violence intervention programs, shout out Advance piece, that look at targeting those who are most likely to pick up a gun and fire it to change some of those determinants or at least start shifting some of those priorities. But then you look at the other side of it and, you know, there's a part, and I'm trying not to tease too much into it, but when we talk about mass shootings, there's a assumption that Americans make around what a mass shooting means and who's involved with that. Um, And then the next jump from there is terrorism, right? Um, Which I'd say it's terrorism on the front. end. I mean, feel
1: free to to flesh this out.
2: Well, let's get into it. Um, So yeah, when you talk about a mass shooting, let's call it what it is. Usually we think of, you know, white American males um, that have a bone to pick or axe to grind. Um, Usually it's associated with a hate crime of some sort or some deep Uh, seeded hurt that they've encountered. What's interesting about this dynamic, though, is that you're still talking about the dynamics of mental health and what that support looks like. Now, the access looks very different in those two situations, right? Um, We know by the statistics, it's very well known, right? Our communities of color, African-American communities are vastly um, underdiagnosed and underserved when it comes to mental health, and there's a big stigma around it in uh, black and brown communities, yet the problem still persists of trauma and how it's addressed um, or if not addressed, resulting in the outcome of gun violence, right? But I think they're very two different microcosms of it, right? This was horrible in a number of ways because we've seen so many innocent lives taken. But I think in one of the articles, I think it was the LA Times, um, and I rarely like to um, give love in any way, shape, or form to policing because I think there's so many harms that need to be addressed from policing first before we continue to pat them on the back for the job they've done. But... Uh, <laughs> Our local police chief did say something that I thought was very true. She said, you know, we're seeing a very public display that our communities know all too well in terms of some of the community violence that happens and the gun violence that happens where there's innocent people that are lost by gun violence. Right. Um, I think that's a different set of determinants than the mass shooter, you know, white male taking out mass victims. Right. There's very different circumstances of what that, that support looks like to prevent that. Um, So
1: There's a a societal illness of, like, also, uh, like, white supremacy that is a determinant to to those shootings um, that it's...
2: Mm -hmm. It's, a all it's all structural.
1: It's all
0: structural when you look at it. Like all the violence is structural and it's who ends up being the actor is based on their positionality in the structure, right? Ooh. So the actor that is a disaffected white man is someone who is supposed to have power, does not, and therefore because of access and proximity to guns, then is able to inflict violence on people, and then we have a conversation about their mental health and what we need to do. But when the perpetrator is someone who is is brown right then depending on what type of brown person they are we either have the conversation about terrorism and mm-hmm. the perils of usually a religion that is no more or less violent than any of its counterparts mm-hmm. um or we have a conversation about you know uh, uh, about um people-on-people people violence, because I refuse to use the the term that is used to, to talk about interpersonal violence in a way that maligns a particular community. And then we start talking about, you know, why we care about that more than, you know, why, why we don't care about that as much as we care about institutional violence. And I always say, like, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, um, and anybody who says we don't care about those things is not paying very close attention, because we do. Um, and the, and anybody who, who says we don't care about those things has not been paying attention to the, the cries for more money for schools and more money for housing And more money to address mental health and all of the movements that have been happening that aren't always happening necessarily in the streets, but certainly on a day-to-day basis to get more resources for the things that we know. And those are all violence prevention you know, approaches. They may not be couched or framed that way, but they certainly have that impact. Um, and, and it's just, it's really frustrating to hear the narrative kind of come up and to know that based on who and based on their positionality in the hierarchy, that the conversation is going to be framed differently when all of it needs to be talking about systems, all of it needs to be talking about, you know, positionality and all of it needs to be talking about mental health because, you know, traumatized people often traumatize other people. Um, And so, and so when I, when I hear somebody shot six people, their background and their religion and their race or ethnicity and their gang affiliation and, you know, all of those things are, are certainly important factors, but the end, at the end of the day, they should not determine how we frame this. Right. And they unfortunately do
1: we we are products of our environments um and you know flo you give that famous darth vader uh discussion at your public health conferences (laughs) one of my favorites i
2: I gotta plug it if anybody hasn't had a chance to to hear that presentation (laughs) i highly encourage you to search youtube because we've just been in two years of zoom so i'm sure it's recorded somewhere that you can view <laughs> this but flow's darth vader star wars analogy to mental health and the needs there is some of the highest level that you can get and everybody will understand it so i highly recommend yeah. it but it's one of my well, favorite
1: flow give like a, a 30 to 60 second like it, 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 it You effectively are arguing in this speech that um, there are certain traumas that we deal with in our youth that will determine how well adjusted to a society, our society, we will be.
0: Yeah. So basically it's, you know, taking kind of Anakin's progression to Darth Vader and showing very predictable patterns of um, what we often describe as life course theory of what happens at various points in your life, um, increasing the risk for other things happening in your life. And so his life looks, uh, you know, maybe maybe surprisingly to some people, but characteristic of what we would expect for someone who was born into slavery um, was, you know, separated from his parents at a young age. Um, exposed to violence via the clone wars right and had very few in the way of protective factors um and so that's that's what we see and um and it's a it's a story so common that it shows up in fiction right like that that the question we all asked ourselves in episode 4 5 and 6 is how did this happen and then we were filled in with a bas- a story of basically childhood trauma right um and it's like oh that's how this happens right we've all we've all seen this story before we read this book um so yeah that's that's essentially the the cliff's Nose virgin and then hopefully you never see Darth Vader quite the same way again and you start to explore the backstory of all of your heroes and villains is often one protective factor difference, right? Like, for Batman, the difference between him being the Joker and not is Alfred, right? Like, mm-hmm. he had a trusted adult relationship that was meaningful in his life and helped him deal with his childhood trauma. He also was rich. But those two things together really helped make things, make things, you know, work out for him, right? And so, um, and, you know, and the Joker was, you know, decidedly not in most of the stories that carry him through, right? And so, and also does not have a mentor or a trusted relationship and so it's just one or two factors that when you change them are the difference between somebody you know being able to tolerate the stress that that is in their lives and not being able to and it's showing up in ways that impact everybody around them
2: and I think that's that like highlights and that's why I love that that story that you give, that that walk that you give because it highlights so many points of intervention that things can be shifted and changed right um when we talk about that childhood trauma and how long it goes unaddressed and unrecognized and everything that's built upon it it's like oh gosh you could see how many systems have failed this baby coming through and now ends up on the wrong side of something right i want to go back to something too that you highlighted in as you were giving that that breakdown is that when we talk about how brown you are in these incidents of violence that come in what we don't talk about is mental health it doesn't come up it does not come up it's not even a last thing that comes up it just doesn't come up at all Brown people
0: are pathological, white people are hurt. mm
2: -hmm. That is
0: the takeaway message.
2: Right. And we're
0: super predators and these people need needed needed help and a hug.
2: Right. And but we wonder why the nineties
1: liberal rhetoric actually, right there. Mm -hmm.
2: And we wonder why the stigmas are so strong today, right? That it's like, oh well, you don't have mental health, or if you do, you just need to deal with it. It's a behavior issue. It's not it couldn't possibly be that you were harmed so badly that your brain couldn't process the information. So it started finding other ways to Cope with what experienced, what you experience, and now looks at life in a different lens of how you kind of move forward. That's that's not possible at all. (sighs) It's what drives so much of the work that I do, not only with public health advocates, but in outside spaces, right? Like I scream, I feel like I scream at the mountaintops of, "Hey, Black people need mental health." I'm gonna just say it very clearly because it's. And let me say it even more clear than that: Black people need access to mental health that's culturally competent. Because yes. the way that it's framed usually it's not framed for our demographic.
1: It's right. Not. And if you get some white, you know, like therapist who has no no understanding of your context, who you are, like how far do you think that's gonna go?
2: But how and also
0: are- like what what's possible? Because I mean, you know, <sighs> I love, or you know, organizations like the Nat ministry and others that really kind of push back against our systems because I think it's really important. It's also really important to recognize that, like, some of the, the challenge that we're facing isn't going to go away with just individual one-on-one services because the problem is structural, right? Just like poverty isn't going to go away with a financial management class. I have more months than money. And no amount of Excel spreadsheets is going to fix that, right? Like, you, you, I also need more money, right? Like, I, yeah, sure, I can make better choices. I still need more money. Like, there's just not enough. And the same thing is true for dealing with our mental health. It's like, sure, there are things that can, that are chemical. There are things that are, you know, are are individual and, and are social, but there's also the structural component to it. And if part of what is affecting my mental health is the low regard that society has for me, because I am black or I am trans or I am queer or I am disabled or I am, you know, all of these things, I am unhoused. We also have to address that. That's not going to go away just because I, you know, find a way to take baths and meditate twice a day. Like, some of these things also, I need a lower, I need to, I need better coping skills, certainly. And I need to address the physical aspects of this.
1: Material conditions, right.
0: But I also need a lower dosage of adversity, right? If I was being poisoned by something, you would not teach me to deal with the poison. You would also try to stop me from being poisoned. Um, And and I think that's a part of the conversation that needs to be lifted up a lot more is some of what we're seeing is actually not people being, you know, it's not people experiencing um, a, a crisis of unknown, you know, source. It's actually that we have failed in our responsibility to not harm people. And so they're showing up in the ways that harm people showed up.
2: Yeah. This you a, know, I'll go ahead. and just talk about that.
1: Um, well, I, I just want to, to move it on because I know we only have about 20 minutes left. Um, y- you know, you two have talked very um sort of you've really painted a picture on like what determinants are and kind of like why we are where we are and why somebody might end up in this situation where they you know you know commit gun violence um i want to ask about some of the potential answers um how to fix this right uh because i think that Our city has toyed with a couple programs on uh, violence prevention with young folks. Um, But you look at some old, shitty conservative Democrats like, oh, I don't know, Steve Maviglio claiming that those didn't work. And I want folks, I want you to... Because you two know this program pretty well, can you speak to what this program was, how it worked, and and kind of discuss that?
2: Well, let me ask clarifying, just because I may be missing the context a little bit, is are we talking about a recent program or, or an older program? Because there's been a couple iterations of the city trying to address like gun violence and some of that, but it's and each one of them have sunsetted in some way, shape, or form, even when they've seen evidence. So.
1: Okay, the one I'm talking about, I don't have the name of it in front of me, but, uh, f- like, Flo, I think you worked with some of the kids. Oh, Advanced um, Piece. Oh,
2: Advanced Piece.
1: Advanced Piece, yes. yeah. Talk, uh, talk to me about that.
0: Sure.
2: Yeah. Um, whew, I wish we. Yeah, I wish I didn't talk as much before because there's so much to go into it with the Advanced Piece of it. Go, um, go. You, it. So, we got time. So, yeah, I, I – Fortunately, I was um, able to be one of the community organizers that really helped uh, with a bunch of community stakeholders, really push our city to consider implementing this program. And we were the second city to implement it, right? So it's an innovative approach. And whenever we talk about innovation, um, city and government officials love to get very, very conservative and saying, oh, we, we don't have the evidence-based practice behind it. We don't know if all these other factors will implement. Well, we saw in a city like Richmond, shout out to the Center again, Um, In that area where they actually had great success in seeing huge reductions in gun violence. And just from a personal perspective, being a native of South Sacramento, Valley High, got to give shout outs there. Um, One of the things I always knew about growing up was I didn't want to go to Richmond and get especially at night because I knew about the gun violence out there. I knew how likely it was that I would die Mm -hmm. just getting caught up in the wrong circumstance in Richmond. That's how bad it was. I'm giving that for context sake. But to see this program, Advanced Peace, implemented and actually start seeing huge reductions in their gun violence. I'm talking about, I think it went 40, 50 to 60 percent over, I want to say it was like a 10 year period of where they were built this in, um, was huge. And it's still huge because it's still having the same impact. When we brought it to Sacramento, the city, (laughs) the city's argument, they said we definitely need it. They recognize that there's a need for it. However, the challenge was, well, we don't want to be married to it we want to have an out because we don't want to give this much money to incarcerated folks or formerly incarcerated folks or gang members to to stop shooting. Well, if you're giving a third of our budget to law enforcement to get them to stop shooting and it's not working, why wouldn't we consider giving a significant amount to an intervention strategy that can actually see it move? So fast forward. Given right. And
1: just so folks know, we continue to add more and more money to our police. Uh like anyone claiming that we have defunded them in any way in Sacramento, that's not it's true. It's just
0: lying. It was just lying and hasn't read the budget. Um, I, I also want to jump in here and say, you know, I just want to point out again the structural, like the racial triangulation that happened around this because when advanced peace becoming, it basically became a way for um, in particular, uh, a, a white and the, at the time the only woman on the dais to who um, repeatedly you know stands in alignment with law enforcement to essentially try to play black people against black people and so invoke the names of friends friends who do good work but just recognizing that violence prevention has a spectrum and so there there's the primary prevention things which are all of the community investments we make and then there's secondary prevention which is. Preventing harm among people who are at risk, right? So primary prevention for something would be like, let us let's take diabetes, for example, would be you having access to clean air and water and nutritious food and all of that. And secondary prevention would be testing people's A1C and then trying to intervene in a more specific way among people who have pre-diabetes, who are at risk for developing diabetes. And so Certainly we want to invest in primary prevention but the secondary prevention is also incredibly important. We don't want to let the people at high risk go on to become diabetic because we failed to act. And so I would describe advanced peace as secondary prevention and mm-hmm. a lot of the violence prevention programs are primary prevention which is necessary and good and it should it is is deeply hurtful and downright irresponsible to pit the primary prevention folks against the secondary prevention folks because they need each other. And this city council member, Angelique Ashby... Tried to do exactly I, that. I was
1: going to say, you to say the name. Tried
0: to say, oh, well, there are already people who are here in Sacramento doing this work, and I don't think we should fund this other entity, that this other program that wasn't started in Sacramento, to do it. And it's like, so we can't learn from another city because they're not Sacramento? Make that make sense to me. Um, and why on earth would then you start trying to make it so that organizations that are underfunded for their primary prevention work are now being pitted against an organization that you d- don't want to fund for secondary prevention work. Like there's enough money for everyone, Angelique, if you do the right thing um, and you just stand on the side of not wanting to do that. And so this becomes a problem. So I just want to call out, that was racial triangulation. Yes, It was inappropriate. It's insidious in the way that we operate. We make people of color in particular black people often scramble for scraps and infight against each other for a small pot of money while somebody else secures the entire bag. And that somebody else being the POA, the police officers association. So we see you. Mm-hmm. It's not cool. And we've got your number. So just remember that because it's not, it, that was not okay. And we didn't forget.
1: At all. Angelique's um, biggest donors during her time in district one in Sacramento uh, have been the, uh, affluent white folks of the external suburbs um you know her favorite lunch is boot burgers with cheese um like we we know what angelique's about
2: this is a fact and it's it it was extremely disheartening to see that argument as a proposal when we met with angelique on a number of occasions to say hey why aren't you in support of this program right Um, she ended up trying to boil it down to codified language, right? I'm I'm worried about our investments in being in here and being stuck to something that doesn't work. It's like, well, you're already painting a picture of it not working because Richmond has different factors. But the funny thing was the, the factors that she cited were the exact factors that we were walking into with Sacramento. She said in Richmond, they just underwent a new police chief. We were just bringing in Dan Hahn. In Richmond, That they just had a massive community trauma. We were just experiencing that recently. So it was it's it was very interesting that these these are your arguments, but and the like,
1: trauma we were experiencing was Stephon Clark?
2: No, not yet. That was this was oh, okay. this predated Stephon Clark. Um, this was well the coming culmination of several community shootings that brought the energy to Stephon Clark just okay, okay, the metalview shooting um specifically. And I have to say something, um, which I gotta give him a shout out because it was something that he said very true. Um, he was cited in the New York, or excuse me, the LA Times article, um, Barry Axius, where at that shooting um, that happened in at Meadowview Park in South Sacramento, um, he said something that was very profound to me as a resident. He said, this is not normal. We can't act like this is normal. And that's such a key statement because for somebody who grew up in that very neighborhood, I didn't realize how normal that was to me. My reaction wasn't, dang, we had a loss of life man, what's going to happen to these kids who are here? And like, none of that was was my thought. My next thought was, oh, you just activated OGs who are going to come back into the streets and it's going to be more shooting because that's what happens in, in these situations, right? But it made me check, oh, wait a minute, what trauma am I walking in? And if I'm walking in that trauma, what's happening to everybody else around here? So I say that to say what Advanced Peace was introducing to do was truly groundbreaking because it's like, hey, the person that you're most afraid of, has anybody talked to him? Has anybody seen what their needs are? Has anybody understood that they're making a set of choices based on, again, what, what flows talking about, right, those primary investments of my life situation is messed up where I don't have, have stable housing. My mother has to work three or four jobs and probably is put in high-risk situations that leave me in high-risk situations where I'm experiencing other levels of trauma, right? I have to find ways to provide, right, that all these different things that lead to a path where you're trying to find the best decision to secure your finances, but also secure... Your- to secure yourself, your personhood, and often associate with groups that have different interests and lead into that life. But where Advanced Peace was stepping in was to say, hey, how do we take that person and start introducing them to these other parts that allow them to make different choices from picking up a gun that leads to that conflict, right? Right. And the first year of implementing it, Sacramento happened to see, for the first year, zero gun violence in our, our teen youth, or zero youth homicides, excuse me, in that first year that it was implemented. Now, of course, you could add other factors to that, but Similar to what you're lifted up, Flo it's, and I have. It's a chance. pretty incredible. It, it's it's yeah. amazing, especially for a community where the age of shooters, active shooters, was dropping lower and lower. We've seen active shooters in the past two years as young as 13 years old, 12 years old in some situations, right? So to recognize that that's a huge impact immediately within your first year of implementing the program and them recognizing like, this is who we have to target. And and I don't like the the language of target, but this is who we have to make sure that we're prioritizing and reaching out to, as well as the other folks that are known was huge. But the thing that troubled me most with our city council and our city governments was they were constantly looking at, how do we get out of this? We don't wanna be on the hook for this, but it's like, well, this is public safety. This is investment into communities that actually is showing tangible results. Yet you rather push the responsibility somewhere else and drive the funding in another direction but you're seeing evidence here so what's what's the real investment at that point
1: It's classic myopia right I mean it's it's they they are responding to the rich folks that that pay their campaigns that are like I want red blood justice I want red meat justice I want somebody to pay for this crime and like you know trying to get more cops like an Angelique type like Angelique again like naturally this is, it's very simple. Like she dehumanizes folks that are potential shooters, right? Like by saying that it's not worth it in investing in this and saying that we should just invest more and more and more in the police is saying that I'm just going to wait for these to use Bill Clinton era nineties terms, these super predators to act so that we can put them in prison for years and years. And it's so myopic and and we have to flip that we have to flip that narrative um and i mean i i guess that that's the work that you're doing that that Flo's doing as well
0: but the problem here dave and i i, can, I really feel like i can't say this enough is that so, you know, there are the people out there who would say, "Well, we want, you know, police on in, on the streets because we want them to solve these cases and we want them to to keep us safe, right? Like that is mm-hmm. their pro- like they right. are earnest in their in their assessment." And I would say, OK, scratch that just a little bit, because in the city of Sacramento, our police department has repeatedly refused to provide any performance metrics other than how many officers we purchased and how much that costs us. But we have not been able to get from them. What is the impact? Like You're constantly telling us you need more officers, but you can't explain to me what they do. They only serve less. They only solve, you know, less than 40 percent of cases. Um And so so I'm, I'm really confused about how any of this makes us safer. And so if somebody in the police department could draw me a logic model between the investment of over half of our budget that we give you and the outcomes that we're actually seeing, I would be most appreciative because right now I've not seen that the performance metrics that our city manager owes to the city and promised last year in the budget are still not to be found on any um on, on you know on the website or anywhere in the dashboard um, the measure you committee has been asking for them so i'm i'm in a place now where i'm saying piss or get off the pot so you tell me that we're spending all this money because it's doing all these great things i'm from the show me state i'm not really mm-hmm. that's missouri I i'm am. i'm from Pennsylvania. Well, but my family. show me what that means in black and white because you keep telling me this has to happen and it feels a little bit like a sunk cost estimate of we've already spent so much money on the police. We just have to keep doing it because it's the way we've always done things. But you can't and actually show me any value that they're providing
1: because they don't need to because they're riding on this sort of like American flag wave patriotism like they don't need to feel like they're accountable for a goddamn thing. And I think that's what's really frustrating about it. I've reached out to SACPD recently. I've done PRA work requests to them on, give me an itemized report on every single thing that you are spending your budget on. They can't. They don't You have any granularity to where their budget goes because nobody cares. Nobody provides oversight. And really, I mean, this comes down to our city council side too, possibly our city manager. I don't know how that works. Um, but like... There's no oversight and no one seems to care. And so you have bootlickers like Jeff Harris and Angelique that just sort of rally the troops and say, Yeah, let's keep buying them fucking tanks. And like this is where we are. When okay. But the tank, I'll yes. Like
0: honestly, like like I'm I'm here, I'm at your mercy just tell me what we got for this. Tell me what the right. impact was because I'm looking at my measure you budget and one year um, council member Eric Guerra, you know, lobbied to get, I think it was $90,000 spent on sex trafficking. And the only thing that this department could tell me that they spent it on was staffing. And I was like, so were fewer women trafficked. Did you make a plan? Did you write a policy? Like, what did you, what was the impact on sex trafficking of us spending almost a hundred thousand dollars on sex trafficking? Like, it's not a lot of money, but at some point I have to say, like, start small. What did you do with this discrete pot of money for a specific purpose? And if you right. tell me FTE, well, I swear, full, <laughs> I'm going to lose <laughs> my mind. FTE is not an outcome. Well, FTE is a process to get an outcome. That person should have job alert. duties, uh, full-time equivalent. Oh,
2: yes. You should
0: tell telling me how much money you spent on somebody is not telling me what they did with their time. It's telling you you hired a person to do a job. What was that well, job? What did they do with that job? Did they succeed? Well, did so, they
2: succeed? So, what you're saying, Flo, is that part of at what point do they provide or do they demand the same level of scrutiny from law enforcement and their expenditures that they do from community based organizations and that are getting $500? Yeah. Five, yeah. They have to that, write seven to reports
0: <laughs> and apply and apply in a 20-page grant. But the police mm-hmm. department just gets to show up and say, we need more. And, oh, by the way, give us raises in the middle of COVID. And everybody rolls over and plays dead. Like, but, it does not make sense. I know we talk about this a lot on the podcast. But it simply does not make sense. And I really want everybody to be as angry about the fact that not only are they just getting all the money, but they've never actually written out a logic model to tell us why, to justify why they're getting all of the money.
1: Right, exactly, and like, and some folks might wonder, like, why we're asking this on an episode where we're discussing, you know, a shooting out in the community. But it's like, more money to cops doesn't stop shootings because it's not a de- fewer cops is not a determinant of a shooting like this. It's just not. Exactly. So. My question is, what are we spending on cops? Why are we spending it? And should we not move that from the cops to the community to actually prevent these shootings from happening? How much did SAC PD have to spend on the on the Fab 40s protest? Not just in like all the folks they had marching out there, you know, uh, behind you guys or, boxes. you know, hitting Flo with a fucking bike or, you know, pulling Ryan's shoulder out of his socket or illegally kettling and arresting 87 people like in the lawsuit that that came from all of that like should we not be considering this when we talk about what our cops are doing and what what community safety really looks like
2: so my brother d'angelo mac that i'm fortunate enough to work with um and and you guys have heard so much of the reasons why i love working at public health advocates with uh Flo-Jean Kofar over there, Dr. Flo-Jean I haven't said that in a while, and I used to tease her <laughs> about that all the time. <laughs> um, but he said something that I thought was so eloquent and so on point today in a meeting that we had where he said, we know that um, violence continues to evolve, and as such, the solutions and the approaches to violence need to evolve as well. Yet, when you look everything that you just said, Kempa, when was the last time that was evaluated? When was the last time that we actually looked at, hey, does the definition of public safety still apply current day? Are we outdated in that? Because if we continue to look at the same look at the same system, the way that it's been funded and supported and only continue to grow from there, but we're not acknowledging, and we can acknowledge that there's a thousand more community problems because we've done the work to understand how complex it is, yet we still won't go back to the way that we define our response to it. Are we really shortchanging our community and is our community unaware of it because it's like well this is just the way it is we don't need to re- talk about it again but we're talking about every other aspect except that and 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 also 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 whose responsibility is it is it the communities truly to have to 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 name the oppression or is it the the, the decision makers that we have elected that say we stand for you to actually say, you know what? We're not looking at this the right way. Our budget continues to go up over there, but our results continue to go down in the worst ways or up in the worst ways. Let me put it that way as well. Right. Um, I think our homicide rates are the highest they've been in three years uh, coming out of the pandemic, which there's a number of reasons. and factors I, I fully have to acknowledge that that contribute mm-hmm. to that.
0: Predict- fully predictable, by the way.
2: It's 100%. And and at what point have we looked at truly investing differently into our public safety and reclassifying what's considered public safety and who's considered public safety and really invested in those models? We haven't. I can tell you, we haven't. We, we've done more work to remove those from our, our general fund and our city budget and our city uh, practices than we've seen to invest in that way in a different way.
1: We are at time, in part because I got too yelly. Uh so can can you two answer that question that that you just posited, Ryan? Um what is what what to you two are are the correct or more correct ways to start investing our money in ourselves? I know Mayor Steinberg came out with a big press conference with a couple of state legislators today saying, Hey, you know, we need to put funding into X, Y, and Z. Um, was he correct? (laughs) Was he wrongheaded? I think I'm getting my answer here, looking at the screen. Uh, and, and if, if he was incorrect, what is the
2: answer? Uh, uh, My reaction that you saw was frustration because this is the first time that conversation was had. At the beginning of this pandemic, when Joe Biden got elected into office, he put $5 billion towards gun violence intervention strategies. But when he distill that down to the state, um, county, and local level, pennies on the dollar went to the actual gun violence intervention strategies that they were talking about those dollars were designed to do. So who did it go to? So when you call for $3 billion from our state budget to do the same thing, I have to question, why didn't you do that with the money you already had available? And when you're saying, what does that look like? It's your advanced pieces. It's your, um, your IYTs. It's your... And, there's a number of programs, and I don't want to disrespect anybody for naming or not naming all the different programs, but it's a part of where are we recognizing that it's not an either or, it's a both-and solution that needs to go there. I don't need 10% of the 60 or 50% on the dollar that was supposed to go to community investments to actually go into those programs. I need that full 50% to go in there, talking about measure use specifically. When we're saying that there's a $3 billion investment that we need to make into um, intervention strategies and community care, Well, what does that mean in terms of providing an accessible mental health access, not only for the students and the young people there, but their parents as well? Right, like if I'm going to provide a counselor on the campus, and I feel like we need to have at least 20 counselors on each school campus to address uh, social emotional needs of our of our students, we also need to have those same workers, or at least another crew of workers that connect to the parents at home to make sure that the follow throughs there, and that there's a safe a safety and a care plan that's implemented and followed up on, right? And I think that goes across the board. There's a, a number of programs that need to be there, but then also you need to continue to add in your MH first, your mental health first for the acronym piece there. Um, to be invested that provide a different level of care that police are not equipped to respond to. And I'm not just saying police, fire's not equipped to respond to it either. Maybe paramedicine, but again, they're looking for emergency response to a medical need. There's a difference for quality of life needs that need to be responded to, right? And the burden that that puts on our our overall general budget, but also those apartments. When you look at the cost, and I'll say this last piece before I pass it to flow, if you look at the cost of a fire truck being dispatched for a quality of life call, it will make you sick to your stomach when you consider a battalion chief has to be on there, usually a fire chief, about three firefighters and one paramedicine. For a call that ultimately they'll show up and leave and their salaries that are there, you would be disgusted to realize how much money we're burning on inappropriate response for these type of programs. Right. And that's just fire, right? So yeah. I'm going to digress because there's so much to get to, but thank you for asking that question, though.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, Ryan pointed out a lot of the the structural things that are happening here that are, are a real problem. Um I think the the big takeaway here is that is the continuum of services. And I think we have this conversation a lot when it comes to housing. I think we have this conversation a lot when it comes, you know, to public safety. I think we have to have this conversation when it comes to, you know, medicine, right? Is like we can't sacrifice doing things at multiple levels, right? We have to have an immediate response. But if you set the immediate, if you only fund the immediate response, right, you have people going out and responding to calls and someone needs, you know, clinical services and you have nowhere to send them because you didn't fund the (laughs) upstream stuff. Or someone needs housing and you have nowhere to put them because you didn't fund the other stuff. So you have to think about a comprehensive approach to this. You can't Piecemeal this, and you can't operate in silos because if you well, we do, we can't just police
1: them and cite them no, and move them.
0: No, what? Dave, unfortunately, we can't, and I oh, don't know man. why we keep doing the same thing when it oh. keeps failing. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. And so we have to think about what are we going to invest? I mean, the thing I'm, I'm wringing my head around, is like the same thing is happening with the pandemic, right? Like we invested so much after the fact and trying to deal with it. And now we're not going to learn any lessons from this. And we're going to be in the same position if there's another novel virus that comes up or when there is a climate change event or any of those things, because we don't actually take the time to invest in every level of prevention and service that's needed so I don't want us to, to you know, not address the needs of the people who are, exist right now. But I also, we got to stop having more people in the same volume of people in need. We have to do some primary prevention work. Somebody has to stop responding and start looking upstream and saying, what are we going to invest in so we have fewer people we need to respond to? And I, I just... You know, all these solutions that keep you know, being proposed are very short-sighted. They're very, we're going to do this immediately to make it seem better. And it's very similar to, you know, doing a, a paint job when a full demolition is needed, right? Like you, you just can't, you can't paint your way out of some of these issues. You have to take a step back and say, is our system designed for the outcomes we want? Because if it's not, then all you're doing is kind of trying to play whack-a-mole you know, with a problem, and you know our reflexes aren't that fast. Yeah. And so this 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 shooting ultimately was just a symptom of structural issues that were happening, and it shows a bit of individual way. And we lost six human lives. Um, it, you know, I, I'm not like a a super like you know superstitious person, or you know, like oh, but like the same number of lives we lost. Last year in the storm, right? It's it it it's it's showing up in this way, like this, like the, the a structural failure, and we lost some people, and that one was violent, but we don't see it that way because a gun wasn't involved. But all of these things are institutional violence because of inaction and because we have wrung our our hands instead of actually rolling up our sleeves and doing something about it. And so I want us to actually think about where our dollars are being invested. That's why I think budgets are so important. Think about what policies we're passing. That's why we should not allow our business community to hold us hostage and to push through their agendas. Think about, you know, the volume of money we've spent on things and do we have the data to actually show that that's valuable and recognize that each time we don't real people lose real siblings and you know the heartbreaking the fiance you know who's standing outside with a sister who's you know give, you know in the San Francisco Chronicle article and giving each other a hug you know comforting each other in their loss that's a very tangible real loss these two people have been traumatized by what happened sunday morning because of our institutional failures and we all have to accept some responsibility for that happening and say Let's do better so that this doesn't happen to another set of families. Thanks.
1: Um, that's an incredibly powerful way to end this episode. I think um, tying these two systemic issues together uh, in a way that, like you know, we don't necessarily want to, but um, our, our business "quote unquote" leaders uh, have forced us to today. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I hope we get to have you again um you're just a wonderful person it's a joy to have you on
2: I love this conversation I mean unfortunately the topic but I love having these conversations and digging in with y'all I've been like I said I've been fanboying over my opportunity to get on voices and I'm like man can I get another one I need to find some topic that they'll want to talk to me about, but one day, one day, I I, I believe it's going to happen again. So I'm rolling with.
1: But well, I mean, we'll get you on again, and maybe it'll be in like happier circumstances, so we can just joke around a bit more too, right? Yeah. Um, but no, um, you are it, yeah. I, I, obviously, like one of my favorite people, one of flows, I'm sure, um, because you two are around all the time each other. Um, I gotta wrap. it We have gone. A little too, long. Skylar's going to be mad at us. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I just want to say to folks, um, you know, take care of yourselves out there, please, please, if you need to talk to somebody, um, do reach out to those around you. Um, and like, even if the trauma didn't affect you personally, like we all process this stuff differently, just, just don't be afraid to talk to folks. Um, I guess just rounding out the episode, you know, uh, we love the work we do. Uh, we hope you love it, too. If you do love the work we do, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash VoicesRiverCity, as little as 5 bucks a month, as much as 25 bucks a month. Um, I am currently working on the Sack Follows the Money project. Uh, thank you, Tibby, by the way, uh, listener and friend, for pushing me on that and saying, hey, why are you doing this or what? Uh, yes, I'm doing it. Um, and then beyond that, uh, you know, we're at voicesrivercity.com. Um, I am on the tweets at Uno you know, Kempo,
0: And I am at Flo Flojon, F L O J A U N E. And Shannon is at ShanNDStevens. N D Stevens, and Skylar is at guillotine for you. That's guillotine the number four Y-O-U. And Ryan, where can we find you?
2: I am at Claiborne Convo. That's at C L A Y B O R N C O N V O. No, my picture is not on it. And that's how you know it's the right one.
1: <laughs> Love it. All right. Um, thank you again, Ryan. Uh, thank you again, listeners, for waiting a couple days on this one. I think it was important that we did. And I'm glad we did. Uh, and we will see you all Tuesday. Bye-bye. Hey. Don't hang up, Ryan.